As you have already deduced, Pastor Brad's taking a step away from Daniel this morning, and I will be bringing encouragement and exhortation from the Scriptures this morning. Before we dive into the text that I have chosen, you probably follow, as I do, uh, these bits of information that sort of constantly trickle in from around the world through ministries such as Open Doors about what the status of the church of Jesus Christ is in some places in the world where it's very difficult to maintain one's uh, Christian testimony. Uh, just last November, uh, a young North Korean girl in her late teens, Suk Yung Kang, a Christian, uh, managed to flee North Korea into South Korea. And uh, she fled because as she watched the increasing uh, oppression and persecution by the North Korean government upon Christians, she decided to try and escape that. But before she escaped, uh, she had been visiting her uncle, who was a Christian missionary, and it was visiting him in prison that she really saw up close and personal the reality of the regime's uh, repression because she started taking him food in prison of which he had very little. And she has gone on to share with those who would listen that there are Christians in North Korea that are persecuted and punished simply for being caught owning a Bible. And she reports that there are not hundreds, but tens of thousands of North Koreans who are right now incarcerated in labor camps where they were abused, uh, tortured, and worked uh, to death. Something that may not be on everyone's radar is one of the most violent countries on the planet right now for Christians is Nigeria. I know you've heard about Boko Haram, the uh, radical Islamic terrorist group, and I came across the account of a family that the father looked out the window and saw some of these radical terrorists climbing the fence onto his property. Uh, he went out to ask what they wanted, and as his wife and sons were inside, they watched him slaughtered to death in his front yard. They then attacked his two sons, one of them named Manga, who were in their teen years, and uh, they were uh, hit and cut and left for dead, but both of them actually survived. And Manga has very conspicuous scars uh, on his neck, which he used to be embarrassed by because it drew everyone's attention, but now he sees them as a, kind of a tribute to the grace of God uh, who preserved uh, his life. Uh, Pastor Brad just prayed for the Connors uh, in India. And uh, India, in certain segments over the last 12 months, have had an intensifying of persecution uh, upon Christians, so much so that as they're trying to distribute aid, even during the pandemic, that if they learn people are Christians, they are passed over and they are not distributing the food and necessary supplies to them like they are the rest uh, of the population. No surprise to us also, we know about Iran, and of course they are governed by Islamic law, which includes such violations that if someone is caught sharing their faith, they would be arrested. 
It is illegal in Iran for any Christian services to be taking place in the language of Farsi, which is the common language uh, in Iran. And if you are caught being a part of the underground church, you also face the threat of arrest. And so we, we hear these things, and uh, obviously it's disturbing, but we do have to step back and say, you know, this is not something new. We know throughout the history of the church for over 2,000 years that there have been in various places and at various times these waves of persecution that are officially launched by uh, wicked and godless governments. And many missiologists have been reporting these numbers uh, for the last 40 or 50 years that I recall, and that is that more Christians have been martyred for their faith since 1900 than the whole 1900 years combined leading up uh, to that date. So we see uh, it's, it's easy to feel like we're a, a part of a group that is a shrinking minority, and not just around the world, even in our very own country. Uh, we realize that there are certain rumblings that are going on in the political arena and other places where Christians are being more and more criticized, marginalized. You know the stories of the bakers and the photographers and all the rest of it. But if we keep on the trajectory that we seem to be on in some people's minds, then it seems like it's not in the too distant future that merely reading the Word of God will be declared hate speech because it happens to express a morality and an ethic that does not go with the flow of the culture. And so this text this morning, I think, is a bright light for us. Uh, my intention is that there will be some conviction, but also really encouragement from these verses in 2 Corinthians. You see from what's on your bulletin there, the passage that I'm speaking of is 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, it's always difficult to parachute in on any one segment of Scripture. We just don't have the time to explain all of the uh, backdrop. But let me read verses 12 through 17, and then we'll go back and move through it. And it is my purpose to remind us of four aspects of the gospel of Christ that we need to keep in mind as we look at the world around us and look at our nation and what seems to be a growing anti-Christian mentality. Paul writes, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The first aspect of the gospel is that the Lord is always creating open doors for the gospel of Christ. Paul acknowledges that in verses 12 and 13. 
But yet, even as he's acknowledging this open door, he is somewhat conflicted between having an eager spirit and having a restless spirit, if I can put it that way. Of course, we know the Apostle Paul, I think, without doubt, the most dynamic, effective evangelist who's ever lived. All of Paul's plans and all of his efforts and all of his energies were invested for the message of Christ, for the gospel. That's why he went to Troas, as he says in verse 12. He came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. And not only here, but Paul continually strategized and was on the lookout for open doors anywhere he could find them and go through them and proclaim the message of Christ. I love the prayer request that Paul passes along to the Colossian church, and I think it's a prayer all of us should have posted somewhere on your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator or wherever. He writes to them, and he says in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And we find Paul several other times using this language of having an entree with a certain non-Christian crowd and referring to it as an open door. There is an application for us here that is quite obvious, and that is that it is still true today that God uses his people to be available to go through open doors when there's an opportunity to share Christ. And so you and I need to be intentional, and we need to be sensitive to the open doors that occur before us in our day-to-day life. Now, I realize that when we look at the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, that the immediate audience was the disciples. And I've often heard that observation as sort of a defense against not all of us are required to do this as Christians. But of course, that is an erroneous interpretation of that commission. Because as we look through, especially the gospel of, excuse me, the book of Acts, even though the Great Commission was spoken to the apostles, the whole church took it to heart. There are the names of many men and women sprinkled throughout the book of Acts that they all understood this was something that every follower of Christ was to take responsibility for. When Jesus himself, uh, in the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you know, part of what he says there is that you are the salt of the earth. Then he goes on to say, you're the light of the world. You know, be a, a light on top of the hill. You don't put a basket over a light. Let your light so shine so people may see your good works and your good deeds, and thus glorify your Father. Well, if you look at the very beginning of Matthew 5, 
it says that the crowds were there, then his particular disciples were drawn to him, and the whole section ends with the crowds being amazed. It was more than just the apostles or the disciples themselves who were hearing this admonition, this exhortation to be salt, to be light, uh, to indeed be looking for open doors. Those who have studied church growth, at least during my lifetime and having read many of their books, almost all of them without fail make the same observation. They report that evangelism is very rare among Christians. Why is that the case? Well, there's several answers that could be given. Uh, one is that we don't look for open doors because it requires a mindset. Uh, so we're not really thinking in those terms. Or if we are aware of open doors, perhaps we sense there's too great a risk to go through the door in order to speak about the Lord Jesus. And the risk might be we might be rejected because we can encounter people who are very hostile against the message of Christ? Have you ever been with someone and talked about everything from gator football to the weather, but the minute you mention Jesus, they're almost, you can almost see the hair stand up on the back of their neck? It's not true of all unbelievers, but with some it is, and that might cause some of us to retreat in timidity. Uh, we're afraid of offending people. For myself throughout my life, I've always been concerned that if at the outset I identify myself as a Christian, what are they going to identify that with? Are they going to associate me with some of the people they see on TV? Well, I don't want to be associated with them. Now, maybe I was wrong, but many, many years ago, there used to be a man named uh, Jeb Smock who came to this campus every year and went to campuses all across the country. And he used to go to the Plaza of Americas, and he was an open-air preacher. At least one person remembers Jeb Smock. And while I was a student here, I was curious, and I went out, and there was a crowd of a couple of hundred, but this guy's delivery and his way of proclaiming the gospel was to constantly shout and yell at everybody in the crowd and call them every name in the book. You're a bunch of harlots. You're a bunch of whores. I mean, just really crass language. And he was just kind of accusing everybody what they needed to repent of. And at one point, he said, how many of you here follow Jesus? And I didn't raise my hand, not because I was embarrassed to let people know I was following Jesus. I didn't want them to think that I was with this guy. That can be an inhibition to sharing our faith if we think that we'll be associated with what we don't want to be associated with. So Paul eagerly went to Troas because there was an open door, and if there was an open door, he would go through it unless God just stopped him. And that happened a couple of times, and he was diverted elsewhere. But his evangelistic efforts were suspended in Troas due to his restless spirit. Why did Paul have a restless spirit and not stay on at Troas? Well, he had just come off a disheartening experience in Ephesus where he had to make a hasty and premature departure because his preaching actually incited a riot in Ephesus. You remember that story. We won't rehearse it uh, now. And so he was already somewhat discouraged by that experience, and he was also concerned about Titus, a colleague in ministry, a faithful 
follower of Christ, and a faithful fellow worker. And that, not knowing Titus's status, along with being concerned about the Corinthians themselves, because, see, he had written them a letter that was very strong and had blistering corrections in it. And he was concerned how they would be perceiving him. And in fact, I would just direct your attention to the first four verses of chapter 2 that we just read from the end of. I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So all those uncertainties, Titus's well-being, what were the Corinthians really thinking of him? He decides, as it states in verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, but taking my leave of them, I went on. Uh, to Macedonia. So his zeal for the gospel took him to Troas, but his intense love and concern for the Corinthians and Titus kept him from staying there. Now, just to finish out his relationship uh, with them, over in chapter 7, it mentions Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, and only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So we see that it actually turns out to be a source of encouragement, but at the time he's writing the beginning of the letter and explaining what went on earlier, uh, he was uncertain and conflicted with this restless spirit. By the way, if you go through the book of Acts, even though he left Troas earlier, he later goes back and spends seven days with the believers uh, in Troas, so he had not uh, completely forgotten about them. But then, however, the testimony and attacks by detractors, and again, let me just say, they're sprinkled throughout this letter. People are undermining Paul's credibility. They're undermining his sincerity. They're attacking his physical appearance. They're attacking the content of his message. They're really trying to do a character assassination on him, and we find him uh, defending himself uh, from those attacks. But even though he was undergoing uh, those attacks, we see that he has reason to praise God. His optimism is not squelched, even feeling as low as he was. Look what he does in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He was triumphant because of Christ. His detractors in Corinth were smugly calling attention to his recent reversals and setbacks in Ephesus and in Corinth, uh, painting him as a, a defeated man. 
And he responds to these attacks, as I was referencing a moment ago, by what most New Testament scholars call a digression. He starts digressing here in chapter 3, and it continues all the way through to chapter 7. But he begins his defensive digression by the use of a rich and graphic imagery. And it's the imagery of a triumphal march. Verse 14, I just read, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. I think there's almost universal agreement that the backdrop to Paul's imagery here is the triumphal march that was awarded to Roman generals who had significant victories in battle. And it was really quite a spectacle. Uh, the entire population would turn out along the streetways in Rome and first would come marching through the state officials, followed by the senators. Then the trumpeters would come in behind them. Then they had these carts full of all the spoils of war they had taken by the way of money and other valuable objects. Then they would have some carts that actually had models of the ships or the citadels that they had conquered. That was followed by a white bull who would later be sacrificed to thank the gods for the victory. Then would come the captive princes and generals. Behind them would come more musicians. Then would come priests with these censers that had this incense in it that would send this aroma out into the crowd as the procession went by. Then in a golden chariot came the general who was being honored followed by his family. And one of the most spectacular such processions was in the first century, and it was to honor Titus and his father Vespasian, who was the emperor, and it was for Titus defeating Israel and Jerusalem in particular. Jerusalem was razed to the ground, the temple was destroyed, and Josephus writes of this in some detail. And part of the spoils that were displayed before the Roman citizenry were some of the furnishings out of the Jewish temple. That being the golden, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the trumpets. Uh, as they often did, they built this huge monument uh, to Titus in Rome. Priscilla and I have stood there and looked at it and have seen the etchings, and you can identify the spoils of the candelabra and the table of showbread and the trumpets that were taken out of the Jewish temple. It's called the uh, Ark of Titus there in Rome. So this is the imagery that Paul seizes uh, to describe that rather than being defeated, he is a part of a procession that is triumphant because of the one who is leading it, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's perception of triumph is not resting upon his own accomplishments, but more upon what the Lord is doing. And the language here, if you look at it and dig in more carefully, the triumph is his, that is Jesus' triumph. So there's triumph despite the resistance. So Paul, despite his setbacks, despite the attack by opponents, 
despite the resistance to the message, he is a part of a marching victorious procession. And so are you and I as followers of Christ. In our world today, regardless of what is going on around us, we are a part of a triumphal procession. There is the unstoppable spread of the gospel around the globe, whether it seems readily apparent to everyone or not. Jesus' words, I know you know them well, but I repeat them. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Greek grammarians have helped us to see that the church is the one on the offensive here. They're not the ones defending behind a wall. The church is the one that's on the march, and the gates of hell shall not be able to hold back the march of the gospel. And so with that thought in mind, coming back to how bleak it can seem in our own country or in other places around the world, regardless of what CNN or BBC tells us, we are not to be despairing as the people of God. We're not to be despairing. He then, continuing with the imagery of this triumphant procession that the Romans were used to sponsoring, he goes on to take another thought from that procession. He's already mentioned it, but in verse 16, he goes on to talk about this fragrance or this aroma. That is a, that, that's a powerful uh, picture because fragrance, fragrance is a powerful thing. Do you know that cologne and perfume is a multi-billion dollar industry? And in some ways, in the modern world, we're obsessed with fragrances. We don't want to smell bad ourselves. That's a good thing. But it goes beyond that. We have air fresheners for our cars. We burn candles. We spray Febreze to get the stink out of the carpet or the sofa. There's oils, little machines that pump mists. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. We're just trying to control, you know, the smell and the odor with, with things uh, that are pleasant. And Paul here talks about the power of fragrance as it came from the censers those containers that those priests had that they were sprinkling around in that triumphal procession. We should be concerned about how we smell. Uh, having raised boys, now I don't have firsthand experience. I'm watching, uh, looking on as we have a granddaughter in our family. But for those of you that have raised boys, and maybe it's true for girls too, although I was always told girls don't sweat, they glisten. But anyway, um, you know, when the boys are active and they're going to football and basketball and all that, and you pick them up in the van and, or they got a couple of friends with them, I mean, whew, man, it can, be, it can be ripe. And it's amazing how long a boy can live before he realizes he needs to do something about the aroma that is uh, emanating from him. Uh, one of the uh, annoyances of motherhood, at least for my wife, 
was that um, because Jonathan and Joel and I would all do this, she said, I'm so tired of answering the question, what's that smell? She never said, maybe it's you, but, you know, it, it was a good chance that it was. But you know how you reach that age when you realize you do, you do need to be aware of what aroma you're giving off. I remember when I was starting high school, discovering Brute and English leather and British sterling. Anybody else remember those? Uh, I remember even in middle school, you know, you're riding to school and everybody's kind of blowing their breath into their hands, smelling their armpits, uh, putting enough banaca in your mouth to make your eyes water and not be able to talk for five minutes. They still have banaca? I don't even know. Some of you recognize what I'm talking about. I remember when Joel was, now this is the heights and the depths. Last week he shared the word and encouraged us all, and I'm going to tell you something about him when he was 12 or 13. He discovered he needed to have deodorant, and so I told him I'd take him to buy some, and we went to the drugstore somewhere, and he was just going up and down the aisle, smelling and smelling. I said, Joel, just pick a deodorant. He goes, well, a man's deodorant's an important decision. I thought, a man's deodorant? I mean, you're 13. Oh, a fragrance, a certain smell is so powerful it can bring back a memory, a memory that's decades old. And uh, some uh, smells we, we welcome. Uh, the smell of coffee for some, the smell of the ocean air for others, fresh baked bread, chocolate chip cookies being baked in the oven. In fact, if you really want a high, go to Thornbrook and just walk into Thornbrook chocolate and just inhale and then walk back out. Well, you'll look weird if you just walk back out with buying something, but you can get a, a whiff for free. But you're know, talking about the power of fragrance. Many, many years ago, Priscilla went with some ladies on a retreat up to one of the islands off the coast of Georgia. And during the retreat, they broke away and went to some kind of a restaurant to have a meal. And believe it or not, in that restaurant, Priscilla bumped into her boyfriend from ninth grade when she still lived in Augusta, Georgia, eighth or ninth grade doesn't really matter. But anyway, and she was sharing with me that she saw Landy after almost 20 years, and she said, you know, he still smelled like English leather. I thought, that's special. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you shared that with me. <laughs> but I'm getting off track. Paul's ministry, and he's saying to us that our, our ministry of sharing Jesus Christ becomes like a fragrant aroma to those who are exposed to it. Do you see that here? It, it, we're like a fragrant aroma. And the proclamation of the gospel was a fragrance, as Paul says, of Christ to God and of course it is for someone to hear the message of salvation for redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ to, to be brought to the realization that we can be cleansed from our sins and forgiven and made righteous. Yes, that comes like a wonderful aroma to the people whose eyes are opened and who embrace that. 
And so, what aroma emanates from you concerning your love for Christ? You know, this thing of smell, I really got on this this week. Um, I usually walk before sunrise every morning, and there's one street that I go down, and I don't know where it's coming from, but it's so pungent because uh, there's privacy fencing. Some man is smoking a pipe that has a wonderful smell to it. And I don't know which yard it's coming from, but at 5.30 a.m., it's so strong that in some mornings, as soon as I go within a half a block, I smell it. And, and it just fills the air. You know how like when someone in your neighborhood's having a barbecue and that smell kind of wafts over to your house and it smells so appealing and so good? Well, is, is the reality of Christ wafting from your house in your neighborhood? In English, the term fragrance typically is used to describe something that is sweet or pleasant to smell. But the Greek word that he uses here is used for that which smells good and for that which smells bad. And so no surprise he uses that here when he goes on to say that it's an aroma from death to death and to the other aroma from life to life. So Two different people having that fragrance hit them is going to have one reaction or the other, and it depends on whether one believes and embraces or one disbelieves and rejects. By the way, I love this little statement. I actually heard it the other day on the radio, uh, probably a name not familiar to anyone in here, probably Brad at least. Uh, there was a Presbyterian minister in Scotland back in the 1800s named Robert Murray McShane. A lot of ministries still hit, use his read through the Bible in a year plan. And uh, outstanding young pastor. He became a pastor at age 22 and unfortunately died of typhus uh, at age 29. He was only in the pastor for seven years, but man, what an impact he had. And in fact, 7,000 people is reported having attended his funeral. But he once made the statement, the Christian is a person who makes others want to know God. The Christian is a person who makes others want to know God. Can that be said of you and can that be said of me? Well, we've stated that it's a wonderful aroma for those who believe, but as he says, it's an aroma of death to the unbeliever. We call the gospel good news, and indeed it is. But for those who reject it, it becomes bad news. Because if you hear that message and offer of salvation, and you refuse it, then what do you confront? Well, Jesus said, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, Peter employs uh, a similar approach to this uh, in his letter that is talking about how something can have the effect of being positive or negative, depending on how it's received. Remember when he writes these words, quoting from the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So that stone is something precious and dear to those who believe. 
This precious value then, he goes on, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So for us, we see him as the, the stone that gives the fitting to the whole building. He's the center point, but to the unbeliever, that's something to stumble over. It's an impediment. When we encounter hostility from non-Christians, we shouldn't be surprised. And of course, we will be accused of being exclusivistic and not inclusive and being judgmental. But you know, even the rabbis had this sense of how the message could be received as that which is welcomed or not. Uh, the rabbis had a statement as the bee reserves her honey for her owner and her sting for others, so the words of the Torah are an elixir of life for Israel and a deadly poison to the nations of the world. Well, it's a deadly poison if, that is, you reject the word the Lord has given. So, Paul's metaphor is accurate. Even going back to the Roman triumphal procession, when you think about it, I listed quickly all the people that were a part of that entourage. Both the victors and the vanquished who were going to be executed at the end of that processional, both of them smelled what was coming from those censers. Yet one, what they smelled was an indication of death to come. And for the other, of course, it was for victory uh, and life. So finally, uh, in verse 17, there is this sincere proclamation of the gospel. Let me reread verse 17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, notice he said we're not like the many. So there was quite a group of people who were, and the word he uses, it's the only place that appears in the New Testament, but it was a word that was common in Koine Greek, the common language of the day. And it is a word that referred to a huckster, uh, a peddler, as the New American Standard has translated it, or a tavern keeper. And the reason why tavern keeper was one of the descriptive definitions of this word was because it was used most frequently to talk about the people who dealt in selling wine and how they would water it down and mix it with other things to have a greater profit while selling an inferior corrupted product to people. In fact, people who dealt in the wine trade were so disrespected that in the ancient Greek city of Thebes, Anybody who had functioned as a retailer, especially in the wine business, could not serve in government unless they had been away from it for at least 10 years. So when he uses the word peddler, he's talking about somebody who was really on the low rung of society in terms of uh, respect. And he refers to these people who are supposedly bringing the gospel message as those who are peddling the word. And man, that's as true now as it's ever been. Um, George Bose's Chapel Life Group, which I have been meeting with uh, for the last two or three months, uh, we watched together, as I think all the other Chapel Life Groups have watched, this documentary 
DVD called The American Gospel. And it's one of those things that's important to see, but uh, it'll make you angry at times as we're reminded of a lot of these people who are claiming to present the Christian message, but they are adulterating it in the worst way, especially when it comes to how it's lining their own pockets. Uh, supposedly, Joel Osteen is worth $100 million, Benny Hinn's worth $60 million, but they're amateurs compared to Ken Copeland, who's worth $300 million, and he has some of the most erroneous and heretical teaching that is on the scene today. It is not the gospel of Christ. And it's important when we share the gospel that we never bring any cause for suspicion or disrepute especially in the area of finances. I and mean, why do you think when it gives the qualities for an elder, it has to be someone who's free from the love of money? So this isn't true just with the church at large or national ministries. This is every local congregation. Uh, Peter uh, says uh, of elders that they're not to be fond of sordid gain. And yet we see the opposite uh, running rampant in our country. Now... <clears throat> I talked to Brad a couple of days ago on the phone, and I asked him to pray for one thing in particular about me bringing the message today. And what I asked him to pray was that I would be able to walk the line between not just laying a guilt trip on everybody, because we haven't shared Jesus more than we have, along with, in the spirit of Hebrews 10, getting us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and be more attentive to this matter of being the fragrant aroma of the gospel and sharing the gospel with non-Christians. And so in that spirit, I want to close by asking ourselves a few questions, and then I want to send you home with an exercise. Do I keep in mind that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am part of something bigger than any of us, namely the church of Jesus Christ that is on a triumphal march? A triumphal march, by the way, which will prevail over all rulers and nations of our world. Another question, am I as a way of life praying for open doors to speak of Jesus? One of the things that has encouraged me about meeting with this Chapel Life group is that we've met probably a half dozen times. There hasn't been a single meeting where some of the prayer requests were not for unbelievers people they know that they're praying for, that they want us to pray for, that they would come to Christ. Another question, am I a fragrant presence for Christ among those with whom I come in contact with? And along with that, do I not only seek for my life to be an example, but do I speak about Jesus and what he means to me? And as we think about the reasons, I've offered a few thus far why we're not more quick to share Christ. This is perhaps the one that potentially can cut the deepest. Has a lack of compassion for the loss creeped into my heart? Has a compassion for the lost creeped into my heart? Even though he knew the city was going to reject him, looking over Jerusalem, Jesus wept over the lostness, that they did not recognize what he called the visitation of the Messiah. Paul was so concerned over his fellow 
Israelites, his fellow Jews, that he, with hyperboles, that he would almost wish he could be cut off himself in order that they would be saved. A 19th century pastor, theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle, who despite all of his learnedness, had a very fruitful evangelism among blue-collar folks in his day. He stated, the highest form of selfishness is that of the man who is content to go to heaven alone. On a lighter note, uh, Louise Palau, who just died uh, March 11th, just uh, a few weeks ago, the uh, evangelist to uh, Hispanic peoples, he was from Argentina, but they used to call him the Hispanic Billy Graham. He spoke to many, many people. He often would make this statement, Christians are like manure. If you just leave it up in a big pile, it stinks. But if you spread it out, it enriches the soil of the world. And that is that Christians are to be outward, you know, focused. So, ladies, when you're preparing to leave your house and meet and mingle with people, are you more preoccupied with wearing Chanel or with wearing Christ? You guys, when you're preparing for your day and you're splashing on your Calvin Klein eternity, don't forget the more important fragrance, and that is pointing people to the real hope of what true eternity is about. I want to send you home with a little exercise. You can do it in just a few minutes. Take a piece of paper, maybe tonight before you turn off the light, and put your head on the pillow. Think back over the last seven days and just write down the names of every non-Christian that you have had interaction with, whether in recreation, the workplace, in your neighborhood, even if it was brief, write down the names of every non-Christian that you have interacted with and then reflect, have I even mentioned Jesus to any of them? And if you have, keep doing it and praying that the Lord will open their eyes, and if you haven't, ask the Lord to give you the boldness to do it. Tucked away in these verses, and I'll close with this, uh, there is a, a contrast between history and this passage. Uh, I mentioned earlier that one of the most spectacular Roman processionals was Titus, as he was going through the city of Rome and being honored. And yet, there's this great monument to him in Rome today, which will eventually be dust, and he's dead. There's another Titus that Paul references here, who he doesn't have a monument, but his achievements for the gospel are etched in the annals of the gospel of Christ, and he is a part of a processional where our leader is alive. And we all will be with him in this processional. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And in just these very few verses, how we are reminded that even as we sing that though the wrong seems oft so strong, you are the ruler yet. 
and that Jesus Christ is building his church, and we as the chapel are a part of that church. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us individually to be more purposeful and intentional in praying for and in speaking with unbelievers that cross our path. Lord, help us to be more motivated by the importance of someone's destiny than our own pride or fear of rejection. Lord, we thank you that when a visitor comes to the chapel, they will hear the message of Christ. But Lord, the evangelism of this church in the main takes place, takes place at street level as each of us go out of these doors here today into our various walks of life. And Lord, may we as one congregation in this city of many be a congregation of people who are letting our light shine and who are being a fragrant aroma to the city of Gainesville. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would do this through us and in us. And Lord, we also ask that you would allow us the privilege and the favor of seeing more folks come to Christ through the witness of our church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.